0: Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the little letter of Titus in the New Testament, the letter of Titus. I'm going to attempt to do something for the next few weeks. I didn't do very good at it in the first service. That's why I say it with hesitation. A few times a year, I just, I discipline my own preaching calendar to... A specific book of the Bible. A few times a year, I'll just take one letter or epistle or a book of the Bible and just try to preach expository messages through that. We do a lot of series here, and sometimes those are expositional sermons out of the text. A lot of times they're topical messages, and I just want to make sure for the sake of balance in my own life that every year we, we dive into some text and just stay with that text from start to finish, and so I said it hesitantly because we got all of four verses in the first service, and I'm not too confident we're going to get beyond that now, but, but we're going to start, and how many of you know starting is the hardest part, right? So we're going to start today in the letter of Titus chapter 1, and let me tell you as you're finding your place there that this is known as a pastoral epistle, and, and it's one of a little uh, trinity of pastoral letters from the Apostle Paul. The other two are First and 2 Timothy, which you find right before Titus in your Bible. And it's a letter from Paul, three letters, to these young pastors about pastoring the church. Now listen, you may not be called to pastor a church, but how many of you know we're all called to be a part of the church? And we're all called to, to make the church what God intended it to be So my hope for you is whether you are in vocational ministry or not, that you'll find application. Now, saying that reminds me, this is a unique Sunday, because there are a lot of people here that have experience in, in uh, vocational or bivocational ministry. Uh, right before the service started, uh, <laughs> I saw George and Jan Krebs walk in. They are our children's ministry directors for the Pendel District. Thank you guys for being here this morning. Can we welcome you? Uh, last time they were here, George preached for us, but I've been gone two weeks. so I'm not even going to offer today. I want my turn. <laughs> uh, also met uh, some other ministers in the service, just two rows behind him. And brother, tell me your name again. Arnold Wheatley. Yeah, Arnold Wheatley has been a pastor in, in our district for a long, long time. And We didn't know each other personally, but got to know each other a little bit today. Great to have you here. And as I was meeting him, and I saw George walk in, and I thought, boy, you know, the pressure's rising in here for the the preacher. And and then the real shocker this morning, totally unbeknownst to us, two of our our dear friends uh, from the church that we were a part of in Mesquite, Texas, uh, Ronnie and Connie, uh, walked in today, and I was just so blown way to see the Hudson's here. Could you make my friends from Texas welcome today? Amen. The reason I I talk about the pressure rising for the preacher is uh, Ronnie was one of the board members at the church, and and I don't say this because he's here. My wife will testify, hands down, the best Sunday school teacher I've ever known, right there. This guy right here is a man of God. Amen. Amen. I think that's what my wife was going to miss most about the church when we left Texas. She's like, I'm going to miss Ronnie's Sunday school class. Just incredible Bible teacher. And so today, we're going to look at this text for a few moments. And uh, if I didn't mention your name, I'm glad you're here too, by the way. We're going to take a minute and look at this uh, together, and I want you to just get this right out of the gate before we even dive into the text. There's an underlying message to what's happening in this epistle and in the other pastoral epistles that I don't want us to miss, and that's simply this reality. The church matters. Okay, can I just say that? I mean, it's Sunday and you're here. I thought I'd get more than two amens, but the church matters. <laughs> It does matter. And, and for some of you, you know that. You've lived that. You've been a part of the church longer than I've been alive. You've made it your discipline. It's been your habit. You never worked on Sundays. You drug your kids out of bed. You raised your family that way. You know the church matters. But I want to say even more than in your personal life, the church matters in the eternal plan of God. He has a plan for the church, and he's always been eager to produce communities of people that who that have an identifiable, a, a specific, a special sense as his people in the earth. God's always been about that, building a community of people that reflect who he is, his nature, his heart, and his kingdom. And you can go all the way back to the very beginning, and you see that God created in Genesis a perfect ecosystem, a perfect framework for man to thrive, And he made that space for him, and then he created man out of the dust of the earth, and he put him there, and he left him there for a little while, but not very long. He came right back, and what did he say? This is not good. Everything was good up to that point, but he said, it's not good that man be alone. And so he made Eve, and he gave him a partner, but he didn't just make marriage in that moment. He made community, and God made a community for us to thrive in as his people, to have relationship with the way that he always had a relationship in eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that community kind of unraveled, didn't it? Pretty quick, they fell into sin, and then their son became the first murderer. The first victim was his little brother. And after a while, the, the society had, had gone so sour that, that God said, I'm just going to wipe them all out. And he found one man in all the land who had favor with God, and that was Noah. And God said, I'm going to take Noah and his family, and I'm going to build a new community. And he saved Noah and his family, and he built a community. And it wasn't too long, too many generations from there, that, that God spoke up to Abraham. And you remember, he said, Abraham, I want to form a covenant with you. Why? Because I want my own special people. I want to have a people that when others look at them, they can see there's a demarcation of my presence on their life. My favor's with them. My goodness goes before them. I'm for them. And and so he said, I want to build up this nation that we know of as Israel. And you know what the cool thing is about God choosing them is he didn't choose them because they were perfect. He didn't choose Israel to be his nation because they were strong. He didn't choose them because uh, they were... Any, any better than anyone else. The only reason that God chose them is because he chose them. In, in other words, it was completely up to him. It was his decision. And by the way, true for you too. You didn't do anything to be chosen by God. You didn't do anything to be accepted by God or to be loved by God. He just made up his mind one day. I love you. You're mine. And so when the Israelites were in the wilderness... God went out and he rescued them. When they were enslaved in Egypt, when they went into exile in in Babylon, God restored them. And then the scripture says, in the fullness of time, a people who had walked in darkness saw a marvelous light. He sent his son Jesus into the world to redeem his people. And it was Jesus, by the way, that started the church. He's the one who promised to build the church. Jesus said, I'll build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against what I'm building. It was his spirit that was breathed into the church on the day of Pentecost. Can I tell you again, the church matters. God has a plan for the church. Now, I've heard people say, multitude of times, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You ever heard somebody say that to you? Usually right on the tail end of you inviting them to something, so (laughs) that makes it awkward. But... And you know, what? they're right. I mean, I'm pretty sure the thief on the cross didn't get down and go to church before he died. But Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. I'm sure there's been plenty of soldiers who who found some foxhole religion, who called out to God for salvation. They never got a chance to to get off the battlefield and, and go to church. Probably plenty of death row inmates. Who surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. Never had the chance to grace the doors of a church, but, but grace came to their heart. Why? Because you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. But how many of you know Jesus died for the church? And Jesus is coming back for the church. We are his people, whether you choose to, to show up or not. You know, and at the same time, I've heard preachers say before, you know, had you been the only one, Jesus would have still come and died for you. Now, again, that's true. He loves you so much that he would have come and died, but he would have never let that happen because it was only one time that there was one person and he said, that's not good. And ever since then, he's wanted a community. So God's not coming back for a person. Jesus is coming back for a people. He's coming back for a church. The bride of Christ is the church and the church matters. And one day he is gonna take this church out. And when the church comes out, the light of the gospel goes out of this world. The church matters in the earth. We are his presence, his representatives. We're the ones that bear that unique identifying mark of God in the earth. Jesus' plan for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth was and still is the local church. That's why, and I love this verse in Ephesians, that's why all the authority that God gave to Jesus in the earth he gave for our benefit. Uh, let me show you this verse. You don't have to turn there, but Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. Paul is talking about the incomparably great power of God. And listen to what he says about the power that Jesus has. He says, and God placed all things under his feet, under Jesus' feet, and he appointed him to be the head over everything for the church. Come on, think about that. All the authority and power that Jesus has, God has positioned him in such a way in the earth. Why? For the church. Is there anybody besides me this morning that just loves the church? Aren't you thankful for what God is doing in the earth today? So Paul writes this letter to Titus and it's instructions for how to lead a local church, specifically a local church on the island of Crete. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts and the beginning of the church, you know that it starts in Acts chapter two when the Holy Spirit descended and breathed on the people of God. And and the Bible says in Acts chapter two on that day that there were people from all different regions that were present. And in Acts chapter two, verse 11, it says there were both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. So people from the island of Crete we were there when the church started. And they said, we have heard them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Now, after that revival, people, the church began to grow by hundreds and then thousands. But by Acts chapter 7, we meet the first martyr of the church. Stephen is, is stoned to death. And in Acts chapter 8, it begins by telling us that there was a great persecution that broke out against the church. So all these people that had come from everywhere, including Crete, were in Jerusalem, and and revival is happening, and this church is launching, but now something's changed. There's persecution, and it says in verse 4 of Acts 8, those who had been scattered, those who were fleeing for their lives, they preached the word wherever they went. So no doubt, right here at the beginning of the church, there were people from Crete who heard the message that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. They got saved. They became a part of the church. And then when they were scattered by the persecution, they went back home. They went back where they came from for the Passover celebration. They went back to the island of Crete. And now the book of Titus is 30 years after that. So people got there and that the gospel was spreading, and we don't really know how well it was doing, but but there was definitely faith among some people there. And and then Paul goes and he preaches on the island. And we don't get a lot of the details about his ministry there, except really most of it from what he writes about it to Titus. But Paul goes and he preaches there, and he establishes churches. Because Paul was always about planting churches. He was always about expanding the kingdom. He understood that, that a local church was the key having an indigenous church right there in that area was the way to reach the region. And so he was always about planting churches. And he goes and he plants churches and he starts the work. And then he leaves. And when he leaves, he asks Titus to stay and to be the pastor of the church in Crete. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Crete. Now, I know we haven't read this text yet, but I just want you to know what we're about to look at. He's at Crete. Now, now Crete was a place that was hard to plant a church. It was, it was a hard place to go. I mean, if you were looking at the map, looking for the places that might, might be the, uh, the quickest to see success, that's not the place to go. It was a hard place. The, the Cretan people, they worshiped the gods that maybe you're familiar with from Greek mythology, especially the god Zeus. In fact, many of the Cretans believed that Zeus was born on the island of Crete. And as the story goes, Zeus's father didn't want any of his children to usurp his throne. And so as soon as they were born, he ate them. And so Zeus's mother wrapped a stone in swaddling clothes and gave that to her husband. And she took her son Zeus and she hid him on the island of Crete. And it was the, the sounds of the clashing of the warrior's so, uh, swords that masked the baby's cry. So that's the that's the mythological background to the faith of these people. And, and the Cretans were a warring people. Historians tell us that the Roman soldiers trained on the island of Crete. And that the men of Crete were mercenaries. And so they would go and they would do battle for the highest bidder. Now can you imagine if, if you're a, a first century Christian? and, and revival has broke out, and you've received the gospel, and, and, and you're having church, and it's awesome, but then persecution happens, and, and you're being attacked, and people are being killed, and so you leave and run for your life, and and then your pastor says, hey, we're going to plant a church. Let's go over there to the Roman military base on the island of Crete, and let's plant a church there, right? I mean, this is this is uphill sledding. This is tough stuff, This is the place that that Paul says, we're going to go and we're going to start a church. The cities of of Crete were notoriously scandalous, full of sexual corruption, full of violence. In fact, I, I thought this was so interesting. The word for being a liar in Greek is kretizo. It means to be Cretan. So if you called somebody a liar... I mean, they were so synonymous with dishonesty that you were just calling somebody a Cretan. That was the culture that Paul is wanting to start the church, establish the church in. But for Paul, can I tell you, this is a perfect location. He's not worried about their dishonesty. He's not worried about their sexual misconduct. He's not worried about the threats of the military. See, Paul is looking at the island of Crete, and you know what he sees? He sees that there are multiple harbors. There are major port cities on every side of Crete, and he knows if if the church can take hold there, if we can get the church established there, people are coming and going, importing and exporting. The gospel will go to the ends of the earth if we can just break the hard soil in Crete. Now, if you get nothing else today from, from the text that we haven't even read yet, get this. I didn't forget We ought to make sure our theology lines up with the power of the Holy Spirit. See, if we're not careful, what we can do is, is we can begin to discern the will of God based on our emotions. We, we start feeling like, well, this feels pretty good. I think, God, I think this might be God. And then what we do is we make decisions based on impulse and on emotion, and we pray, God bless my will when what we ought to do is pray and receive a word from God because God's already blessing his will. Did you know you don't ever have to ask God to bless his will? His will's blessed. You just got to get in it. And if we're not careful, what we can do is we can begin to make our decisions based on our own emotions. And we say things like this. I've heard this said. I don't know who started it. I don't know where it came from. I don't know why it won't go away. But I hear people say this all the time. The safest place you can be is in the center of God's will. Would you try, in your imagination, run that past Paul? Does that fly for Paul? who's going, did you see where God sent me? Did did you not read about how I was shipwrecked, about how I was stoned and left for dead? Did you not hear about how I was naked and didn't have any food to eat and how I was in prison? And yes, I wrote half the New Testament, but half of that I wrote in prison. But we say things like, well, the safest place to be is the center of God's will. And can God protect you? And will God keep you if you obey his commands? Absolutely. There's some truth to that. But don't make the mistake of thinking that as long as, as long as I'm doing what God wants me to do, he doesn't want anything bad to happen. He doesn't want me to get into any danger. Because sometimes God calls you to the hard place. Sometimes God wants you to go to the difficult place, not because it's easy, but because if you can break ground there, we can push back the gates of darkness so Paul looks at the island of Crete with faith and expectation. He said, this, this is exactly where we need to be. We need to go there. I'm going to challenge you. We need an evangelism strategy that reflects the supernatural power of God. We need to stop asking questions, well, what could we do? We need to start asking questions like, well, what could we never do unless the Holy Spirit shows up and, and helps us? Like, what would be a dismal failure without the grace of God? Because that's where, that's where the Holy Spirit thrives. That's where he operates, in the realm of impossibility, where Jesus can receive all the glory. And we're not, we're not patting ourselves on the back for ingenuity. Instead, we're going, well, I, don't even know. I don't even know how God did that. I mean, he, he told us to do it, and we didn't think it was possible, but, but we prayed, and we believed, and God did it. We ought to have a theology that, of evangelism that lines up with the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles, and I promise I'm going to read something from Titus. It says in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, 9, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, looking for someone whose heart is fully committed to him. Did you just get that in your mind? The eyes of the Lord are ranging throughout the earth today. Looking for a church, looking for a people who are fully committed. It literally means to give strong support to people that are fully committed to him. Oh God, I hope it's this church. I mean, God's just looking for somebody. He doesn't care if the ground, if it's a hard place or if we would think it's an easy place. He's just looking for somebody that's fully committed to him that would throw themselves in full dependence upon him and he's going to strengthen us. See, Paul understood even before he got there. Paul understood that no one's beyond God's reach. No one. I mean, many of you have read it before. Acts chapter 9. Paul was a terrorist. That's not hyperbole if you haven't read it. I mean, he was a literal terrorist. In Acts chapter 9, he was on his way down the Damascus road to kill Christians. He wanted to murder them or arrest them and throw them in prison. That's who he was. But God showed up and spoke to him, and and God called out a man named Ananias. And he said, Ananias, I got something I want you to do. And Ananias said, that's a hard thing. That's a hard place. I don't know. God said, Ananias, I want you to go down Straight Street. There's a man there. His name's Saul. I want you to lay hands on him. I want you to pray for him. I'm going to use him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And Ananias said, Saul, I I know that name, Saul. Oh, that's the guy. They they gave us a flyer with his picture on it at church last Sunday. They said, stay clear of Saul. He's a terrorist. He's killing Christians. Jesus spoke to him by the Spirit and said, Ananias, I want you to go. And he went and he, he laid hands on Saul. He called him brother. He prayed on him and scales fell off Saul's eyes and he was filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment. And Ananias baptized him and and Saul became the apostle Paul that we know about who, who wrote this letter that we haven't read yet. And God used him in incredible ways because a man named Ananias was willing to go to a hard place. And there may be a hard place that God wants you to go to. Be sure that you're moving by faith and not your feelings. So Paul goes to Crete, he establishes the church, and he leaves Titus behind to pastor the church, and he writes, Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. We're not through with the first sentence yet, by the way, so you can see why I didn't get far in the first service. He says in verse 3, And which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light, through the preaching entrusted to me, by the command of God our Savior, to Titus. <laughs> He's just introducing himself. Isn't that great? That's a long Deep sentence to say, this letter's from Paul. And that was the custom of the day. You know, and it makes sense, doesn't it? Like when you open a letter, don't you look at the bottom first? You want to know who it's from? And so in their custom, they just wrote their name at the top. This is from Paul. Now you know. And then it's to Titus. And then there's a formal greeting. He says in verse 4, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, Paul did a whole lot more than just say, this letter's from Paul. (laughs) He unloaded a lot of theology. In the introduction, in the first sentence, Paul says, this is is my purpose. This is what's valuable to me. And I want to just take a minute and and look at the, the four things that he said are valuable to him. Because my conviction is that these things ought to be valuable to the church. He wanted them to be valuable to Titus, who was going to be pastoring the church in Crete. And they ought to be valuable to us today. And if you're a note taker, the first one is this. Just write it down. Build our faith. Build our faith. This is one of the things that that should be a, a purpose. And it is a purpose of this church that we build our faith. Let's look at it again. The phrasing that Paul uses in the first verse is that he is a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To further the faith of God's elect. Can I just say to you today that one of the reasons that we come together as a church is to further the faith of God's elect. That's just the people that God chose. That's you. That's the believers. One of the reasons we come together is to build our faith. It doesn't make sense to me, but I've heard plenty of people that have said, well, you know, I'm really just struggling in my faith right now. And they say that as an excuse for why they don't come to church. Like once I get it figured out, I'll come back to church. That's the opposite way we should think. We're not a bunch of people here who have figured it out. We're a bunch of people here that need our faith to be built up. And one of the purposes for us coming together is just that. Your faith is like a muscle. If you don't exercise it, it atrophies. You you lose strength. How many of you understand? We're we're not there's no neutral in this journey of faith. You're either climbing uphill or you're rolling backwards. And so we have to build up our faith over and over again. The Bible uses that phraseology. Paul did in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He said, therefore, encourage one another, building each other up, just as in fact you are doing. It's not something that we check the box and say, oh, we did that. He said, no, you're doing it. Just don't stop. Keep building each other up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul was talking about the gifts of the Spirit, And he says these words in verse 12. He said, so it is with you, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. Now, what he was talking about specifically there was that people were excited about using the gifts in the church at Corinth, but they weren't all using them to build up the church. Maybe you've seen this happen in church before, but some of the people were just excited about just what God was doing in their own life. And so specifically, God was talking, or Paul was talking about the gift of tongues. And he said, look, I I pray in tongues more than all of you. That's not the issue. But I would rather speak five intelligible words in our gathering than, than to pray all day in tongues. Why? Because if I pray in tongues, that doesn't edify anybody. No, nobody's built up by that. So, so you need to focus on the gifts that are going to build up the church. Now again, Paul's not saying don't speak in tongues. Paul's saying the gift that edifies the church is the interpretation. So pray for the interpretation so that we can excel in the gifts, so that we can have the gifts in operation. But what's the purpose of the gifts when we gather together? It's to build each other up. Now you come on Wednesday night, and we have our midweek service, and we, we do pray together, and we do read the Word, and we worship. But we take time to just seek the Lord on our own, to pray for our families, to pray for our community. And you'll find people on Wednesday night walking up these aisles and kneeling at this altar and praying in the Spirit. Because we're not looking for an interpretation. They're having their own personal time. And maybe you even heard that in worship this morning. Somebody nearby you was praying in the Spirit. They weren't, they weren't talking to you. That wasn't for you. That was their Communication with God. But Paul's saying, when we come together, one of the primary perm- purposes of the church is to build each other up. So if you spend all your time just praying in the spirit, well, that's good for you, but it's not good for everybody. And the church is for everybody. And so let's build each other up. Do you ever, maybe I'm the only one, but did you ever just feel like you had more faith on Sunday than you did on Monday? Have you ever just felt like it was a little bit easier to believe God you know, when the worship team's singing, you know, when the prayer team's out front, you know, when you get in this atmosphere of faith, listen, that, that's, that's not hypocritical. It's the reality that this is one of the purposes that the church exists, that when we come together, we build each other up. That I, I pray my best prayers when I pray in agreement with the body of Christ. I pray my most faith-filled prayers when somebody's praying with me, when somebody's believing with me. It's what we're called to do. We're stronger Together, We're better when we're together. And the second thing that Paul says here in his long one-sentence introduction, and you can write this down, this is a value and a purpose for the church. Grow in the word. Grow in the word. Paul says it like this. He says, I'm a servant of Christ, an apostle of Jesus, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. That, that's, that's why I do what I do. To help the church grow in their knowledge of the truth. See, there's good reason we spend the majority of our time on Sundays in the Word. Because one of the purposes is that we grow in the knowledge of the truth. I've seen people that, that come to faith and, and one of their first concerns is, I, I really, I don't really know anything about the Bible. Like, That's okay. That's why we have church every Sunday. Just come to church. You'll grow. You'll, you'll grow in your knowledge of the truth. Don't be confused by what you don't know. Just focus on what you do and keep growing. Eventually, you'll get a long ways down the road. Grow in the knowledge of the truth. When Jesus recommissioned Peter after he had fallen away and denied Christ three times, the resurrected Lord met him on the seashore. What did he say? He, he do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Why? He was infusing back into Peter. This is one of the purposes for which I have called you. The church has to grow in the word. And I love that, that Paul, Paul doesn't just say grow in the word. L- look at what he says there in verse 1. He says they're, they're going to grow in their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Paul qualifies this for a good reason. The the knowledge and the truth that we're going to grow in it actually goes somewhere. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just academics or information. It takes us somewhere. And the reason he said that is because there were a lot of people on the island of Crete that thought they had knowledge. There were a lot of confusion. A lot of people that were that were teaching things that were contradictory to the gospel. They were they were abusing grace. They were grabbing a hold of the message of grace that says we're saved by grace through faith. That's a true message. We're saved by grace through faith. You can't do anything to earn your salvation. You have to receive it by faith. Jesus did it. You couldn't do it. But they've taken that gospel, and they've taken it too far as to say that everything that happens in the spirit, those are the things of God. Everything that happens in the flesh, those are the things of sinful nature. And there's nothing you can do about Sinful and corrupt flesh. There's nothing you can do about it. This world and these bodies, they're all going to be destroyed. And so they came to this conclusion. The thing that really matters to God is what happens in your heart, what happens in your spirit. Those are the things that God cares about. But the things that happen in your body, they don't really matter. So your conduct doesn't matter. And all of a sudden, the grace of God becomes a license to sin. In other words, hey, where where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So they have the logic that the more I sin, the more gracious God is. We want God to be gracious, so let's keep on sinning. And, and as crazy as that sounds on a Sunday morning, that was, the, that was the, the twisting of the gospel of grace. And so Paul, he doesn't get one sentence into this letter. He says, I want you to know the purpose that I'm here and the purpose that you're still there, Titus, and the purpose that the church exists. We're going to cause people to grow in the word, and it is going to be a growth that leads to godliness. The growth in Christ, in other words, the big message here is that the grace that saves us is also a grace that sanctifies us. That that you don't have to change your life to come to Christ. You can receive grace just as you are, but the grace that you receive causes your life to change. Your outlook changes. Your desires change. The things that used to hold you in bondage, they can change in Jesus' name. When you receive grace, it begins to lead to godliness. Now, that's no claim of perfection, certainly not from me, and I've been doing this thing for quite a while now, but my sin doesn't feel like it used to. You know, what used to be fun doesn't feel fun anymore. My desires have changed. My ambition has changed. My drive has changed, and some of it can be suddenly and in a moment, and for some of us, it's a process. It's a journey. That God's leading us from where we used to be to where he wants us to be. But I can assure you, he's always leading you towards godliness. You don't ever have to pray about a sin. I don't know, should I do that? Should I not? Well, if it's in the Bible as a sin, the answer is no. I know that sounds really clear to some of you. You'd be amazed, though. You know, I've counseled young couples, and they tell me, we're praying about whether we should move in together. Are you married? Well, no. Well, then the answer is no. You don't have to pray about sin. Don't move in together. You're not married. Uh, so grace is not a license to sin, but we have to grow. We have to grow in the word daily. Let me give you the third thing quickly. Hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. Verse 2, he says this. That they're going to grow in the hope. Of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. We're going to grow in hope. Can I just say one more time today, hope is alive. Hope is alive. That's why we got up and came on Sunday. Maybe you didn't know this. That's why we don't gather on Monday morning. Because there was a time when hope was not alive. There was a time where hope was nailed to a cross And hope died. And hope was wrapped up in grave clothes and put behind a tomb. But early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb and the stone had been rolled away and hope was alive. Hope's alive on Sunday morning. And every time we come into the church, it's a declaration to ourselves and to the world that hope lives here. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 6, we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. We have this hope. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I just need to get to church. You ever been there? Just had a rough week. You just, thought, I, just I just need to get to church. I mean, I know in my head what is true, but man, my, my experience is just kicking my tail this week. I, I just need to get, if I could just get in church, if I could just mingle my little faith with somebody else's big faith, I know that it would create a symphony of faith that would touch the throne room of heaven. I know, I can. I hope can live if I can just get back to church. And every Sunday when your driveway empties out and this parking lot fills up, we declare to the world, hope lives here. That's why people that have no desire to come to church, people that have no spirituality towards the things of God, when when crisis hits our nation, natural disasters or a shooting like the ones that we've seen in recent days, people show up, candle in hand, to be at a prayer vigil people that have never talked to God, people that don't have a relationship with God or know how to have a relationship with God. When crisis hits, when despair comes, when it feels like it's hopeless, people show up because they, they know hope lives here. Hope's there. And, and people find their way to the church, and they come looking for answers. Why? Because hope lives here. Yesterday, I had the opportunity, the privilege to, to do a funeral and I say a privilege because every time I do a funeral, I have the opportunity to stand in the midst of someone's sorrow and darkness and say, hey, hope's alive. Hope lives here. And that's what I did yesterday. And I talked to people that in conversation, they don't go to church, but they thanked me. They thanked me because for just a moment, they. They submitted themselves to the authority of God's word. For just a few moments, even though they were instigated by a loved one's passing, they sat and they listened to a truth that is greater than their circumstance, and they discovered hope. Hope has a name. It's Jesus. Hope lives here. Paul emphasizes in verse 2 that my calling, my purpose, the reason I do what I do, is so that the church can be furthered in the hope of eternal life. And I love that he says, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. In other words, he's saying, "Who eternal life, who God, who is not a Cretan, right? in other words, he can be trusted. He can, you, he can be trusted. I know your experience says, you know, people give me empty promises, and then they deceive me. I know maybe your cultural upbringing says, don't trust anybody. Everybody's being deceptive. Everybody's looking out for their own good. And, and I've talked to people before that have said, I, I, I struggle to, to know a heavenly father who loves me because my earthly father was terrible. And, and, and I'm sorry if that's your story, but I would say with Paul, look, there is a God who does not lie. There is a God who's not like your earthly father. That's what Paul's saying. He's not like what you've known. His ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And he has an eternal hope that is for you. And the church, we declare that every time we gather and even when we disperse. Hope. Hold on to hope. The last thing, we'll close with this. Raise up leaders. Raise up leaders. This is one of the reasons that that Paul is driven to see this church established. That's why he sent Titus. In fact, verse 5 says clearly, this is exactly why I sent you. One of the reasons he sent Titus was to raise up leaders. God raised up Paul on the Damascus Road, a guy who was self-described as the chief among sinners, least likely to be used. God raised him up. And then he went and found a Greek boy who wasn't even a part of the chosen people of God. He found Titus, and he told him the gospel, and he raised Titus up. And now he sends Titus to Crete, and he says, I I need you to do the same thing. This is how the kingdom advances. I need you to raise up leaders. And can I just say to us this morning as a church, we need to be about raising up the next generation. Uh, Didn't you just love seeing all these kids down here? I remember my first Sunday here, my three kids were the only kids here. And so I get a lump in my throat every time the kids' church team marches the kids down for prayer. When I see pictures of more than a dozen of them loading up the van to go off to kids' camp, one of the saddest verses in all the Bible, it says in the book of Judges that after Joshua's generation died, another generation came up after them that did not know the wonderful works that God had performed. Can you imagine that? Somehow they missed it. Even though the banks of the Jordan were littered with memorials, they, they, didn't, they didn't know personally the power of God. They might have remembered the story. Oh, yeah, they went through the wilderness. They crossed the Red Sea. Oh, we heard about the Jordan, that, the laps around Jericho, the walls. Oh, that was cool. That was nice. But they didn't know it. They didn't know the power. It's often been said, but it's true. The church is one generation away from extinction. If we don't raise up leaders, if we don't raise up the next generation. Now, now I, I say that with confidence today because I, last Sunday while Pastor Chris was preaching, I was driving home from Orlando. I got to be there with Morgan and Alicia who both performed at the National Fine Arts Festival. And there were 12,000 students there that week that we're seeking the face of God together and crafting their gifts for the work of the ministry. I mean, come on, the church has a bright future. That's exciting to think about, the fact that we've got students that are going after the heart of God and want to do the will of God. Can I just encourage you, don't believe the doomsday naysayers. I've been guilty of it myself. You hear the, the stats about how it's all going downhill for the church. I heard a podcast this week that kind of set the record straight on some things, and I was so appreciative. I just want to give you a couple of these stats, because one of the things that's been a popular conversation in the last couple of years has been the rise of the nuns. Now, I don't mean like a Catholic revival, not N-U-N. The nuns are the N-O-N-E-S. That's those people that when they check the survey box, they say, no faith. They're not Christian or Protestant or Catholic, or they just, they just check the box nuns. And so there's been like this fear that's been widespread in and out of the church of the rise of the nuns. All these people like, you know, atheism is on the rise. All these people don't believe. And, and, and these, these people went and did some deeper research and came out with some more accurate information. And basically what's happening is, you know, people that used to check the box Christian because that's just what you do. The culture's changed. There's not really a rise of people of unbelief. There's a rise of honesty about our beliefs. Some of the ways they take the polls have changed. They're asking more specific questions. They're wanting to get a more accurate reading on where people are at and what they believe. And so people, more than ever before, are being honest about the fact that, you know what? We went to church like every Christmas. We might show up at Easter, but I, I really didn't have a faith. I really didn't have any beliefs in God. Listen to this statistic. Only 9% of those who say they left the faith they grew up with actually had a vibrant and consistent faith when they were growing up. Now, for years, I've heard the the statement, and it it causes fear in every parent and every youth pastor. I've heard the statement that 85% of our kids, they graduate high school and they graduate their faith. They're leaving the faith. They're leaving the faith. Going, oh, God, no, don't let that happen. And this statistic said only 9% of those that, quote, unquote, left the faith admit that they ever even had a faith. It's more than just attending annually. Here was an interesting statistic. more than More 18 to 29-year-olds are regularly attending church today than they ever did in the early 70s. Now, the early 70s is what we call the Jesus movement. Some of you remember that. I mean, that was when like, wow, man, God's moving through all the young people. But the statistics show that there's more young adults today attending church than there ever was in the 70s. You know, if you believe the press, you think that the church in America is going to hell in a handbasket, that, that we're losing, that, that it's over, that it's, it's washed up. So the question is, is the church shrinking? And and Pew Research said, yes and no. The right answer is yes and no. Because if you're talking about the liberal church, the compromising church, the church that keeps changing its views on biblical issues based on popular opinion, yeah, that church is hemorrhaging. That church has lost from 5 to 7.5 million members in the last 10 years. But when you look at the part of the church that is a faithful Bible-teaching church that actually calls people to discipleship, when you look at the stats on the church that actually tells people we're to be in the world but not of the world, that church isn't losing members. In fact, that church has gained almost 2 million or maybe 2 million members in the last two years. Glenn Stanton said this. He said, the church... To, to say that the church is shrinking is not only bad sociology, it's bad theology. And I love that statement because that's true. I mean, do you think that Jesus is up there like wringing his hands? Like, I mean, I, I, oh God, I did put my neck out there. I said I'd build the church and the gates of hell wouldn't prevail, but I didn't know about the millennial generation. Like, like no, that's terrible theology. Let me give you one more because this really blessed me. A study that came out of the University of Southern California shows that young people who grow up in a home where their family attends church regularly, where the Bible is talked about, where prayer is a part of their home life. They pray at the dinner table. They pray before bed. we am not talking about perfect parents, but just a family that has a consistent Christian life, a family that is guided by Christian Convictions, this was a long-term study that was done by Southern California. The statistics show that those kids are nearly guaranteed to maintain their faith into adulthood. Now, we didn't need the University of Southern California to tell us that. We could have just read Proverbs 22.6. It says, train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. That we've got to be committed as the church to say, this is why we're here. We're going to raise up leaders. The same way that God raised up Paul and Paul raised up Titus and Titus raised up elders at the church in Crete. There is another generation. There are people that God is calling and stirring to do a great work in the church. We have to be committed to it. We have to be committed to build our faith, to grow in the word, to hold on to hope and to raise up leaders. And this morning, I, I, want us to, I want us to just pause for a moment before we dismiss this service, and we're going to pray towards this end. Here's what I want to say to you before we pray. If, if you're here today and you feel like an outsider, I want you to know that if Jesus is the Lord of your life, you're, you're a part of the family of God. I mean, you're, you're, a, you're as much saved Is anybody here, from the front to the back of the room, you're a part of the family of God. Now, we can feel uncomfortable, you know, for reasons like I don't know people or I'm not used to this style of church or whatever, but I'm talking about if there's there's an unsettled in your spirit that says, I'm not a part. You can be a part. You can be a part of the body of Christ. But you can't be a part of it because you were raised in a Christian home. You can't be a part of it because your grandparents uh, went to church. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He has sons and daughters. And so when you come to him, you come alone. You make up your own mind to pursue the Lord with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the good news is when you come alone, nobody stays alone. Because when God saves you, he puts you in a family. He puts you in a church. So I'm going to ask you, if you just bow your head with me, we're going to pray. I'm going to pray for the church, but just before I do that, I I want to pray for you. Maybe you're here today, and, and that's you. I just described your life. You're not really in a relationship with God right now, and so you feel distant. Maybe you're not in a relationship with the Lord, and you feel out of place even in his house. Maybe you are one of those that did grow up knowing you grew up in the church, and you're familiar with the Word of God, but but your faith has drifted. Come back, right now, in this moment, in your heart. Just just step into grace. Step into grace, and then let let godliness grow. You don't have to do anything else to start, but start. The fruit of the Spirit that'll grow, that'll come. Just. Step into grace right now. If if you're here today, you just need to step into grace. You just need God's forgiveness in your life. You need him to bring you back into the family of God and into a right relationship with your heavenly father. If that's you, I want you to just pray a simple prayer. Just say this, say, Jesus, I give you my life. Just tell him from your heart. Jesus, I give you my life. He died for you so that you can live for him. Just say those words. It's not the last prayer you're going to pray. There's certainly a lot more you need to talk about, but it's a great start. Jesus, I give you my life.